You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha, welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. Today, our guest is going to be Emmy-winning production designer Kalina Ivanov. She has an amazing filmography. We're going to jump into what we can with the given time. And with that, I'll welcome the guests. Aloha, Kalina. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Thank you again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Excellent. So there's such a wide range here, and we do everything we can to not have cliche questions, but one or two always come up. So obviously the cliche question of all would be, uh, to start us off, why production design? <laughs> um, well, it was a natural progression of the fact that I wanted to be a theater designer. So uh, my visions of myself as an 18-year-old were that I was going to design the sets for really fabulous avant-garde operas and theater pieces. And uh, with that in mind, uh, after my family and I escaped from Bulgaria, and I do mean that literally, escaping, in 1979, uh, we landed in New York. And by a complete coincidence, I found the theater program at NYU, and I enrolled in it. And um, I was an undergraduate in it, in a graduate program, which, honestly, had I known what that meant, I probably would have never done it. But not, but not knowing the difference between graduate and the graduate school, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll join the program. <laughs> and right. so uh, so once I did that, uh, m by the end of the program, I realized that there is absolutely no avant-garde theater in America and very little avant-garde opera. So my dreams was a bit <laughs> dashed, shall we say, because I discovered that what theater in America meant was um, musicals, Broadway. And uh, that was not really my cup of tea when I was 19 or 20. My taste in uh, material was very, very different. Um, so anyway, so I worked on, on Broadway as an assistant for about a year and just really didn't see a path for me in that world, uh, mostly because I wasn't understanding it. And I think when you don't understand something, you can't be good at it. If it, you're not enjoying it, um, there's no way you can succeed at that. So I had a mini crisis at the, at the right page of 22. Uh, <laughs> the tough age. <laughs> I had an artistic crisis at the age of 22. And, and <laughs> exactly. And was wondering, what the heck am I going to do? But um, while I was in that uh, assist, the eighth assistant to David Mitchell, who was a Broadway designer, there was another woman there from Yale who said to me, Kalina, you know, you draw so fast. Have you ever considered doing storyboarding? And uh. so it was just like, oh, what is that? That sounds very interesting. So I said, do you mind if I cook you dinner and you can come and show me what that is? She had done some work like that in England. So she, literally, I made this very fancy dinner based on the New York Times recipe. <laughs> you know, I really <laughs> outdid myself because uh, I was not at all a cook at 22. And um, <laughs> definitely not. Anyway, it was really amusing and, and kind of great. And she showed me her work. And I was absolutely like, oh, I was enchanted. I just said, oh, I can do that. I should be doing this. <laughs> and so I self-taught myself uh, of how to do that and um, 
pestered everyone around me for a job uh, as a storyboard artist, pitched myself, made my own portfolio. And about a year, it took me about a year to land the first one, which was on a TV show called The Tales from the Dark Side. And there... Um, oh, the well, you worked on that? Wow. wow. <laughs> yes, I know. And then the first director I met there did a feature, a low-budget feature. So he asked me to do some storyboards for that. And then I fell into it. And, uh, um, and I would say I was learning as I was doing it, to be honest. I mean, I was even, like, even some of the lingo I wasn't very clear about. So realizing how much I loved film and just the sheer... Uh, like the imagination that went into it and the 360 degree world of it versus the theater, which was a proscenium world. I just thought to myself, you know, you better learn more about film. You better go to film school. And that's what I did. So as a graduate, I went to NYU design, uh, excuse me, uh, film school. So I, I learned to make movies and I wanted to do everything. I wanted to editing. I wanted to learn about everything. I wanted to learn about producing and editing and cinematography, uh, made my own films. My short film was nominated for a student Oscar. Uh, it was, it was really interesting time and it was a great experience and I'm glad I went through it because it gave me an, um, an understanding of film and of the other departments and what they need, because when you experience it yourself, you realize, oh, as a designer, I better pay attention to the cinematographer's needs. That's why they're asking for this. Or that's why the editor is saying this. Or that's why the producer is mad at you, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. You know, just kind of, <laughs> you, you get to exp- kind of understand what other people are coming from. So, and I think that's a really important thing to be a successful production designer is not to be stuck just in your bubble of how you see the world and what your needs are, but to actually really understand that you as a production designer are interacting and supporting every single department. And um, storyboarding was a wonderful way into film, into finding a pay job and into finding not just my love for film, but actually really making, uh, surviving, making a living at it and getting better at my craft. Um, and so uh, anyway, it was, uh, and it teaches you to think like the camera. So if I have to say I have a superpower as a production designer, my superpower would be that I'm really think like a camera when I design. I'm very, very conscientious about it and how the design will, could be seen through the lens. Um, so oh, that's, that's interesting that you're because yeah. I picked the, I I first noticed that with Anastasia and I were talking about it where I, I that was something that I'm always interested in is how much you have to understand uh, I guess almost like depth of field or where a shadow is going to be or a, that it's not necessarily I mean obviously you're not picking the lights and that's between the DP and the director but um with storyboarding i mean i guess i could have a question here about silence of the lambs you, uh that's obviously such a well-known set the jail and the hallway so kind of i guess by your estimation how close i always wonder how close are these design storyboards to the actual set i mean like is could you give a percentage cuz obviously nothing can ever be 100 so what like what are some sets on like with that that hallway in jail, did you have to sketch the jail and sketch like how how did that how does that work? So, Sounds of Limbs is a very unique experience. Uh, 
for I, for me to answer this, it's going to be a little bit of a long answer. I have to take you to the beginning of how I met Jonathan Demme and how our, and what our process was like, because it was unlike any other director. So I met Jonathan Demme while I was uh, in my last year in film school. He came to NYU to do a... Um, like a project with the students of where he was directing a movie and we were going to be the crew. And the head of the school said, Karina, you're the only person who knows anything about design. You have to design it. And I said, well, I'm cutting my thesis film, so I'm not available. I I (laughs) You're not available for Jonathan Demme as a student? Go ahead, sorry. That's correct. That's correct. That was my answer. She thought I was crazy, which I was. Uh, And and, and more to the point, I said to her, you have $400 budget. How do you expect me to do anything good for him on $400? And she said, well, what if we give you $800 and you really can't turn us down because we can't embarrass ourselves? So it's not an option. You have to do it. And I was like, okay, fine. Give me the $800 and I will do it. So I doubled the budget. That was my first negotiation. That's a win. (laughs) Yes, I doubled the budget. Got all my friends to help me and did this thing with him. Uh, You know, and built the set that was kind of crazy. It was called, it was a theater company that was doing a very avant-garde production of Uncle Vanya. And it was set in a Midwest radio station. And so I designed this um, radio station, but I said to my friends, well, we have to connect it to Chekhov, so we have to put birch trees outside of it. So we made birch trees out of these tubes, and, you know, anyway, it was pretty funny. I hand-painted them, everything, and then what I did is I put the clocks. You know how the clocks always have London time, um, China, New York, right? Right. And and it's like 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whatever. Well, I, because it was kind of an uh, avant-garde comedy, I did New York time as 5 o'clock, London time as 10.15, and China as, let's say, 11.35. Yeah, I gave the minutes that didn't exist. Oh, I, gave, I okay, added minutes okay. to it. Yes. Right. Okay. And he was so amused by that. And, uh, and that's just my crazy, delirious mind in the middle of the night as I'm thinking, like, what's missing from the set? How can I make it more avant-garde? So that was my contribution to the avant-garde language of production design. Anyway, and, <laughs> but he was, he was really tickled pink by it. And, and, and I was super tired and he's talking to me and, I'm like, and he's like, I really like the set. Why did you do the clocks? And I'm explaining it to him and I'm super tired, practically falling asleep. And, and, and I said, you know, I am really a storyboard artist. I make my living as a storyboard artist. So if you ever have a project, I would love to storyboard for you. And he was like, and he said, absolutely, write to me. I do have a project, so send me your resume. So I did. I wrote to him. I sent him my resume. And 45 days later, because everything was snail mail, I get a phone call uh, from his producer, Ed Saxon, that Jonathan would like to give me a try. And I was like, well, I charge such such and such. And they were like, oh, they were kind of taken aback because they thought I was going to do it for free, I think. <laughs> me, right. me, being an, me being an immigrant, it's like, no, no, you don't understand. I can't work for free. I can't afford to work for free. Oh, right, right. Anyway, anyway, it was so funny. I did such ballsy things when I was younger. You know, I'm so much more... Uh, constrained now as a, as a more civilized older person. So you wouldn't tell Steven Spielberg now? 
call you back. <laughs> I would be like, I would do it for free. Of course I, know, I would do it for free. <laughs> the crowd, how many months would you like for free? Yeah, anyway, it's just, it's just pretty funny <laughs> how much balls here. Sometimes I have to go and reflect back on that and tap into that 22-year-old, you know, oh, and go right. like, what was I like? Why was I so brave then and didn't even think about the consequences? Right. <laughs> anyway, so lobby hole, um, they give me, they, they, we agree on the fee, which is still an incredible bargain because I didn't charge it. I charged half of what the rate should have been. Uh, but anyway, and they say, well, and I go like, so when do I meet with Jonathan? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. We're going to send you the script. We're going to tell you which scene. And then you're going to send us the storyboards. And I was like, oh, well, how many days do I have? Right. And I go like, oh, we have a week or something. We are, uh, arrange the time. So, and I'm just dying to see what scene he's going to give me. And he gives me not a chasing, which is fun to design as a storyboard artist, not an action scene. He gives me a pure drama scene. And I'm just going, whoa, wow. okay, that's interesting. So he gives me the scene of where Jodie Foster's character goes to, for the first time, with her supervisor. A body has been found. She goes out of town and... The, par- the, the state troopers will not let her inside. They kind of make fun of her. It's like, yeah, you young thing. That was your first outside. scene to design? Wow, sorry. That was my <laughs> first scene to do the storyboards for. Wow. Yeah. Although, if you think about it, it's kind of brilliant because I'm a very young woman. Uh, I, you know, I'm a very, at that point, I wasn't 22. I was like 26 or 7, you know, because I had gone through uh, graduate school, but still very young. And... Um, a, a baby in the industry, basically. And when you think about it, he's giving me the scene that relates directly to who I am at that point of my life. A young woman who's trying to do serious stuff with serious filmmakers, trying to prove herself and kind of hard to take seriously because she's very young, you know. So it's it's wow. a, it's an interesting spot to be in. Yeah. So but that didn't even occur to me till much later. I was just more like, ah, how do I show off in that scene? There's nothing to show off. So anyway, so I call, I call his producer and I said, well, do you have location, uh, pictures of the locations? Oh, no, no, we haven't scouted, started scouting yet. <laughs> I'm like, you haven't started scouting yet. Uh, oh. Okay. So as you know, you can't do storyboards to nothing. You have to do <laughs> I mean, they come from a space. They relate to a space. Camera relates to a space. So I sit down and I do my own, like, ground plan. I'm just going, okay, fine. We'll just do a ground plan. Let's pick a house. This is going to look like that. This is where she's going to be. That's what's going to be inside. There's the door. There's this. Uh, And I do this diagram because I have to work with some kind of a physical space. And I go, like, can he give me any direction? Because he won't meet with me. He won't talk to me. And Ed says, yeah, yeah, he's got one piece of direction. Um, Jonathan wants you not to revel in the gore. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Uh How do you interpret that? So I interpreted it like he doesn't want to really feature any kind of blood or anything like that. He wants to keep it more discreet. So I thought, okay, this body is on a slab. She's covered by a sheet, but she's naked. So we want to keep her dignity. Uh, so I'm going to propose that the camera goes low so that the body is a silhouette, you know. And so you're not going high until Jodie Foster's character finds the moth and then you can go high and into her throat and then you from above her. 
But in general, so I propose this kind of, and because it's about her and the troopers, I propose this kind of scenario where, I mean, obviously, she just kind of plays in the close-up in the emotions, right? Right. And so I was just like, this is boring to draw, but it's the right thing to draw. So I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to draw. Send him, send him to drawing, send him to diagrams. I did a diagram. Then I get like a week later, oh, Jonathan likes this. Now do scene 33. And we went on like that. The next scene was the, <laughs> the next scene was uh, when she goes for the first time into the storage space. Um, wow. Yeah, that was the next scene. So we jumped around the script, you know, um, and again, no, at this point, nothing, no design, no locations, nothing. I am working just kind of like conceptually in a way, which was fine because my theater background had, had really prepared me for conceptual thinking. So in a way, the theater background has been an absolute godsend to me. Um, and so anyway, so that's, so that's the story of Silence of the Lambs. So the Criterion version of the movie does at the end in the extra materials does a um, comparison between the storyboards my storyboards oh. particularly the storage and what they shot and so i kind of invented other things that he did shoot but didn't end up in the cut like and they'll show it to you in the criterion uh, version where because i started amusing myself like you know when you envisioning the scene you kind of like amusing yourself and you go like well if i was her and i was in that dusty old whatever garage thing what would scare me and i would just go "Ooh, a mouse going over a, a piano and so i drew this mouse going and the music and they actually filmed it they did it they show you the footage it's pretty great oh my and gosh i wish i could not, get my hands on that that's amazing yeah so i always recommend get the criterion version of silence of the lambs go to the extras and you'll see and it will answer your question perfectly uh. but it was it was quite the experience because i was never on set um, had no idea how much of my storyboards were used till I saw the movie. And and then there was also another colleague of mine, Carl Scheffelman, who also did, from film school, who also did some of the action sequences. So I think Carl did uh, some of the later action sequences, but I did Jamie Gum's uh, basement. And one of the things that I did for it is, uh, because I was basing it on the book, basically. I was going from the book more than even from the script. Because as you know, scripts don't tend to be terribly descriptive of the sets, but the oh, book right, is, right? right. right? Action, so right. I was going back to the book, yeah. And um, so I started on, on this. I, I didn't know where he would keep the moths, right? So I started on this. I designed this entire steady camp sequence in the basement. But it started on this Victorian cage full of moths. Well, that Victorian cage became the, um, uh, what is it called? What's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, with, oh, English is failing me right now. Um, <laughs> the inspiration. That's the word I'm looking for. It became the inspiration for the big cage where he's brought in what looks like the Philadelphia Art Museum, basically, right. uh, later on. And so you can see which, the power of a storyboard artist is amazing because if you are, uh, I mean, there are storyboard artists that do just stick figures, right? I couldn't do that because I was too much of a designer to do that, so I was always designing. And I was probably super irritating to production designers in, in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, you're 25. They got, a, they got, you know. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Literally, I'm 25 and I'm telling them what to do. But that's not how I approached it. That's not what I was trying to do. I simply had 
to imagine it in order to draw it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if for me, it wasn't coming from any ego place and I wasn't even trying to prove anything. It simply is, I was just trying to see, well, what should this look like? No one's telling me. The script's not telling me. No one's talking to me. So I'm left on my own devices. Well, then you're just going to get what I'm thinking, <laughs> you know? Right. So anyway, so, so that's kind of how it happened. And then eventually, Christy Ziek was a brilliant production designer. Uh, you know, she developed the, the, the look. But these very first three months before production started, storyboards were very, very influential in a, in a mood way more than I even thought myself, looking back at it and looking back at the close-ups and the whole sort of the way I was just thinking about it, you can see how it had an influence. And again, in no shape or form am I claiming I a directed or designed a movie. No, I'm simply saying my thought process, those first ideas, my creative impulses uh, were built upon by these other artists who took that and built a movie out of it and made their own film. And that's basically what every good director does, you know, and that's the job of a good director is to surround themselves with good artists, to take the best out of them and make it his own, you know. So I just want to make sure that... Well, that's brilliant because also it sounds like I think this is utterly brilliant to go on and, I I mean, you know... uh, become the second film to win the five major Oscars. And it sounds to me like he was just doing nothing but using all his Roger Corman tools. Yes. I just love that. You just explained a Roger Corman movie to me. That's the best picture winner. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Yes. And the thing about Jonathan Demme, who literally is my idol and the person who did so much in my creative life that I would always be forever, forever in debt to Jonathan Demme. But the thing that people, first of all, he's a really kind person, really I still speak of him in the present, although he passed away a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. A few Sorry years ago. Sorry for your loss of your friend. Yeah, it it happened during. Um, I have a great ending of our creative relationship story. Uh, we, we're just going to make the whole segment about Jonathan Demi, I think. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just do that. <laughs> uh, um, the thing is, he, and he deserves it. The thing is that he was just so ahead of his time because he gave um, shots to women. He put them in positions like production designers with Christy. He put them in positions like storyboard artists, traditionally male positions. Um, there's not a lot of female storyboard artists to this day. It's not a traditional role for us. And um, he he gave a lot of African-Americans their first job. He was so ahead of his time. He was doing this in the 80s. And he was just a very brilliant man. And he surrounded himself with really pleasant, and he had a really great vibe on set and everything, really pleasant and and fun people. And it was a great camaraderie. So when you were working with Jonathan Diamond, it was a family feeling a true family feeling and I was spoiled by that because the first time I ran not into that was quite a shock the first time I was screamed at by somebody was quite a bit of a shock and uh, uh, so anyway uh, it it was a wonderful experience and so the movie goes on makes history wins five uh, Oscars to everybody's total surprise we have a little New York party to celebrate I have spent two minutes talking to Jonathan about I have lost my second mentor, Nestor Lamendros. And that's what we talked about for about two minutes. I told him about Nestor. And next thing I know, three days later, I get a phone call. I'm Rich Gay. I'm married to Nancy Savoca, and I'm producing her, her film, 
Household Saints, Jonathan is our executive producer, and thought you might be very interesting for a production designer. And wow. I just went, what just happened? What is this? This is a total Cinderella moment. And I ran with that. I made a big presentation. I just ran with it. I said, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to make him proud. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to nail it. And I'm going to make a beautiful film. And that was it. And that's how I became a production designer, which one way or the other I was going to do and it was going to happen. But I think what he saw in me, I think he saw the designer. He saw that kind of thinking um, in the storyboards because they're very elaborate. They're, they're little sets and everything. Um, right. And, and, oh, and I would write descriptions to them anyway. <laughs> no, that's it amazing. Was, and you're, and yeah. you're working with, I mean, I noticed, I, I, I had kind of known it, but I didn't notice it. I didn't know that it went on so long till I jumped back into this of how uh, same producer, same production designer, then of course, Tak Fujimoto. Um, yes. This question, it's okay if there's not an answer for it, but it just came across was, um, I noticed you continued to do some storyboard stuff with Christy Zaya, but if is could you answer why you didn't do Philadelphia? I don't know. I uh, it probably wasn't available because what happened is I because I would go, I would do. Uh, um, I know he asked me to do Beloved. I can't remember about Philadelphia, uh, and I wasn't available because I was actually I had taken Horse Whisperer, I believe, for oh, Redford. Okay. okay. Yeah. So sometimes it's a, just a question of availability. But also, I was going, I was doing storyboards, and now that he set me on the path of production design, so what happened is I would do f- storyboards for big features, and then I would design small indie movies, and Brilliant. I kind of had these two parallel tracks. It was brilliant up to a point, and then it started confusing people because what are you? Are you a storyboard artist or are you a production designer? And our industry tends to be very, um, sometimes a bit narrow-minded in the way it perceives people. And when you have a complicated career, it doesn't know what to make of you and you're not in the lay. You know, people really don't know what to do with you. You know, you're living on the East Coast and you're doing this and you're doing that. Anyway. And how do you you say all... Do X Y Z for you, but I only do this for Redford, or you know, like that would probably be another thing that's kind of. Well, that's basically what it became down to: is I would only do production design, and then I would only storyboards for Jonathan Demi or Robert Redford, or somebody of that caliber, or, or somebody that had really interesting material. You know, right. uh, I just uh, really couldn't do, couldn't continue doing both, uh, and then eventually I stopped. I just. Really, at one day I said I have to stop doing storyboard uh, storyboarding because I am confusing people, and they're not taking me seriously as a production designer. And but I would still once in a while they would come and something really really interesting, and I would go like I just got to do that. Uh, and then that happened to me with Jonathan on the Manchurian Candidate uh, because, and that was like, I, and and when I talked to him and I said like Do you want me to do some storyboards for you? And he said. I thought you didn't do it anymore. And I said, well, for you, I love this film. The thing about it is I was just such a huge fan of Manchurian Candidate. And as a, a kid that grew up on, in Eastern Europe, in communist Eastern Europe, it, it means a lot to me, that movie. And so it was very personal. So I went to do it. Uh, and it was really um, a, a wonderful experience. And then by that time, Christy and I had become friends, you know. So, right. um, yeah, but uh, I think that I think that's technically my last storyboard job. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I'm, I'm always in, I, I had only mentioned Philadelphia because my, I would, I'm always saying this because you had mentioned mentors. Uh, 
a mentor of mine was, um, and this is not a name dropping thing. He was the studio head of, uh, Columbia uh-huh. who, uh-huh. who, who greenlit like Philadelphia and Jerry Maguire. And those movies were like, right when I was like a teenager. So they were just like overly influential, you know, it was just like when you're starting to pay attention to things. And I mean, I saw Jerry Maguire on my 18th birthday. It's like, what more mm-hmm. of a sign you know like (laughs) you can lose everything and still have your ethics and you're turning 18 and you're supposed to be an adult and you're facing this world but anyways um quiz show uh before we jump into production design if you if you wouldn't mind if we um i would just love to know about uh those sets i mean obviously it was a true story and had those aspects and you're uh, Silence of the Lambs, you're dealing with a book, you're dealing with a world that doesn't exist, and then Quiz Show, you're dealing with actual history that people can reference. So how yeah. does that kind of charge up your mind for uh, how you approach storyboards? Well, Quiz Show is one of my favorite films in general. I, I also think it's one of uh, Robert Redford's best films. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's yeah, very sure. under, underestimated Amen. Uh, and underrated, and uh, I think he's underrated as a director. But... Um, that's for other people to decide. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, Quisho was very interesting because I didn't start the job. I actually replaced somebody. Okay. Uh, another fellow um, was going away to direct his own movie, I think. And so I was brought in in the middle of it. And what ended up a, a great three-movie relationship with, with Robert Redford, basically. And I just remember meeting him, and I was a little intimidated uh, about meeting him simply because I had grown up with him. His movies were available in Bulgaria, and and he was just, uh, you know, he's way too handsome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just like you you walk in and you're like, okay, this is just a little too much. And he's sitting on his desk, and he's got this big wooden thing on his desk that says Bob. It's just large, plain letters, Bob. And he goes, please call me Bob. And I just looked at him, and I said, I don't think I can do that. I looked at him like a deer in the headlights, and I said, I literally grew up with your movies in Bulgaria. They were in Russian, dubbed in Russian, and you are Robert Redford. And he started laughing so hard. (laughs) I I was just like, that is so difficult for me to call you Bob. It's like, I don't know. Forgive me if I fail at that sometimes. So I was just, I don't know what to say. And so the first week I spent, he would meet with me. He would not meet with me. He was shooting and he was very busy. So the first week I spent going on set, trying to meet with him and watching Michael Bauhaus work and getting the style. You're so lucky to work with Michael Bauhaus. Wow. Amazing person. Absolutely amazing cinematographer and a kind, really gentleman, very much like Nestor Almendras. They were they were gentlemen, uh, and um, I'm watching him his style because as a storyboard artist, particularly when you're coming in the middle of a movie, your job is to follow the DP uh, and their style. You're not imposing. It's how they want to work. Is how you should be designing just the, the shot sequences, and so I, I had conversations with him, and. I was, um, I think I started with the first opening sequence. I think that was my first one. And uh, couldn't meet with, with Redford. And I finally, what I did, I finally said, this is not going to work. I still, I mean, I'm talking to Michael Balhaus. This is great. But I am just going to draw a bunch of things and put those ideas on paper and go meet with Bob on my own. So I waited for him outside his trailer. And he comes out and he looks at me and says, Kalina. And I go like, Hi. 
I said, I'm stalking you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> wow. He's laughing. And I said, can I just talk to you for a second? I just said, and he goes, yeah, walk with me to set. And I'm like, okay, great. I said, I've taken, I've spoken with Michael. Um, I have a kind of a handle on some shots that he has in mind. And you're so busy. I can see how difficult it is for you to meet. And I don't want to pressure you at all. So I've taken the liberty of drawing a bunch of ideas. And I think it would be good for you to look at them if you want to. And if not, we can meet and you can give me a shot list and I'll redo them. And he goes, good idea, kiddo. Leave them in my trailer. You know, I'll look at them. <laughs> you know, and, and, that's, and that's how we worked. And it was, and it was, I didn't mean to put him on the spot, but I needed his blessing to right. be able to, to move forward. Otherwise, I just felt, I don't know what I'm doing here. They're paying me for sitting on set. I feel very guilty. That's just, I can't do that. I have to produce. I have to have. Right. On the, day of, uh, on the end of the day, I've got to have X amount of panels that I've done. And so we worked very well, uh, uh, very well. Um, and um, it became a really, it's like Casablanca. We became this great friendship at the end. <laughs> you oh, know, that's great, wonderful. <laughs> you know, just, it's just a very, uh, part of it, what I did not know is that he studied art and he told me, he said, like, you know, I draw. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. He loves drawings. He oh, really okay. responds to storyboards because he loves drawings. He doesn't want you to explain it too much, what you're after, he'll get it from the drawing. And so that was really interesting. And then by the third movie, by the time I designed The Conspirator, I visited his one of his homes and he had, and then I saw some of his uh, large drawings uh, framed. And he's quite the artist, actually. And oh. that's very interesting that he doesn't show that. He doesn't share that with the world. because Maybe because he's afraid that people will criticize it. But they're beautiful. Uh, he's a real artist. There's no, um, it's not, this is not an amateur. Um, and uh, so anyway. Well, that just speaks to like what you were saying about the business where uh, many, obviously, like you're saying, uh, he's just Robert Redford, the actor. And then the people who are, lucky enough to know his films as a director like you were saying so much stuff is underrated i agree i'm always like yeah. why have you not seen quiz show why have you not seen this why have you what do you mean what's that and especially seeing the conspirator the other night yeah. um i was just like how did i possibly not see this um yeah, but so yeah so, so i just had one quick question you were you mentioned films that you saw in a communist country so like butch and sundance was allowed in a communist country Yes, wow. because it was considered it was considered a criticism of a, of an of American system because they're rebels. Well, <laughs> Bulgaria in the late seventies. Well, no, Bulgaria in the late seventies was very interesting. Eastern Europe was interesting in the late seventies, which I was very lucky to be, uh, you know, a, a teenager at the time. The reason it was interesting is because the daughter of the of the of the Bulgarian president went to school in Oxford. She did not go to Moscow. And so she became a yoga, she became this, and then she became a, a minister of culture. So she started the first movie theater in Bulgaria where American movies would be shown with subtitles because until then they were all dubbed 
in Russian. And that was part of the joke I told Redford is like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you speak Russian when you open your mouth, <laughs> you know, because he would be dubbed in Russian. And so I would just Whoa. try to describe this, this thing to him. He was just getting such a kick out of it. I said, you don't understand. Spartacus is not I Spartacus. It's Ya Spartacus. You know, it's in Russian. <laughs> you know, this is how I know the lines of movies. And so, so, but she had this special movie theater and these movies and they were like, and they were some of the best 70s movies, but I saw five easy pieces, wow. The Scarecrow, all these counterculture movies of the 70s. And uh, Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy was considered uh, a criticism of the, of the American um, uh, system. They were all with subtitles. So if you spoke, in, if you knew English, you could actually really understand without a censor um, there, you could really understand the text. And the reason movies were dubbed is because they would censor them. So any text that was not appropriate would be, you would never know it existed. That, so, make, yeah, that makes so. sense for that to be set up as a criticism, especially in that year of, uh, what do you call it, Midnight Cowboy, The Wild Bunch, yes. Easy Rider, and yes. Butch and Sundance. Yes. I always look at those dates and I'm just like, I don't know if going to the movies will ever be that fun again. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> those four in like the same six or seven months, I'm like, wow. And five uh, easy pieces. Um Amazing, Yowzers. yeah, Since and 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 some and and of course some uh, uh, th those were just the American, but of course a right. lot of French movies and a lot of Italian, a lot of English, you know, a lot of European films too. Uh, it was a great time, and also there's one movie they don't shoot horses, do they? Which I can't bring myself to look at it again. It's super depressing, but it's about the danceathons in the 1930s, where the people uh, would literally die on the dance floor just to earn 30 cents or. Wow. three dollars or something uh there's a lot of movies like that 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 we saw uh that i consider that a lot of americans have have no knowledge of very few people know the scarecrow you know it's kind of like really film buffs know those movies but you're outside talking of about it, the pacino hackman movie right yep yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah That's a great uh one. it's a, yeah but it's very pessimistic they're very pessimistic movies uh about american culture oh the right. conversation oh i can just do a whole hour on the conversation <laughs> that that movie has a deep influence on me as a designer also just in, uh, me as a filmmaker or as a as a designer well and john anyway. Cazale, speaking of underrated actors i mean I, I know that it's just a film history thing but i always tell people i go fredo was in five movies they were all best picture nominees a couple yes. of one and no actors done that so uh, yes. I actually saw an interview with Pacino where he said, uh, they asked him, what actor do you think you've learned the most from? And he actually said, you'd be surprised, John Cazell. He's like, yeah. he never got his credit, but he could do anything. And I'm just like, wow, people just see him as Fredo. And, you know, of course, the deer hunter. But I always, I love when this happens with a guest because I know we could do a whole podcast about 70s films. <laughs> yes. um, I'm, I'm crazy about them. And I was fortunate enough. The only thing I'll say... I was at a blockbuster in a small island in Hawaii. They happened to have everything. So I was fortunate to actually see stuff in order. So I would look up the book, and I went all through those films we just mentioned, and then I saw Last Picture Show, then What's Up, Doc? Um, and I would go through, and so I saw 70s films in order. And then even crazier, it was in like a two-week period. So I always tell the my mentor who told me to read the book Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, I go did you know how much that was going to mess up my brain to see like Midnight Cowboy, Last Picture Show, and Raging Bull in the same like eight days? 
And he's like, yeah, that's why I told you to read the book. So <laughs> I always just know that I'm lucky that I saw those in order and that some small island for some reason had them. Um, but yeah, so I guess what I'll, what I can jump to, um, we'll go back to the conspirator, but, uh, some things you said about, uh, the, the theater background really pops in my mind now, uh, cause of the scope and the size, even though it's film, uh, long shot, uh, which <laughs> is so, I don't know why I didn't catch the first time. What a great, a social commentary it was. Um, we won't get into, I'm saying, you're not saying, the president being from television. Um, <laughs> anything that comes up in these shows, uh, what I say is my opinion, what Kalina says is her opinion, and we're not, uh, mm-hmm. my team, trust me, and we're not relating to anybody you've worked with. Um, I love Charlize Theron, she's amazing, but um, these, how do I put this? When Anastasia said you uh, had lived in New York, um, I, I've never been to, and I'm not being judgmental here, but I've never been to what they call elitist parties. So like that party when <laughs> Seth Rogen falls down the stairs. Um, do you go and spend time at these? Was it just because you had... I'm not calling you an elitist. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, this is such a hard question to, like, to... uh, But I think you know what I'm saying without me, you know, stepping on my foot. Like, how how does that work? First of all, all production designers are working girls or boys. We're not elitist. Oh, right. No, that's what I'm saying. Right, yeah. So, but I was just, I just made like, you you know a bunch of elitists? So you're, you know, like... (laughs) You just do, you do do your research. I mean, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm none of these characters. That's awesome. Nor am I a (laughs) pot-smoking person either. I'm none of them. I have to do all the environments. Medicinal Molly and cocaine. I love that. I forgot about that scene. I was like, oh my God, Seth Rogen. Uh, <laughs> None of these people. Uh, well, Longshot, which the, the working title was Flarsky, which I absolutely loved. Longshot was a really fun project to do. Um, and that set that you're referring to uh, is actually doesn't exist. I designed it and built it. And the you funny thing. You built ab- that set yes. when he falls. Wow. Yes. Kudos yes, to you. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but <laughs> let me just say that was genius. I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Well, we built it because of the staircase. Um, It's, yeah, and uh, and two reasons. A, because of the staircase. I actually always wanted to build it. I pitched it as a set from the beginning because of the staircase and the stunt, and I always feel when you, you you want a dramatic, gigantic fall, uh, it's, it's better to do it in a controlled environment for the safety of the actors, for this, for the, for everybody. It's easier to rig, it's easier to do. So, but, I was, my brilliant idea was shot down because it was too expensive. So I was like, okay, fine, we'll find a location. So we did. We found one location, and then Seth, who was uh, our producer, Seth Rogen, uh, didn't love it, didn't feel it. And so we found another location, which was great, but it didn't have a central staircase. It had two staircases on each side, but it was a pretty awesome space. Uh, on the top of a hotel. It was a brand new space. They were literally finishing it. It wasn't even finished. It wasn't even open yet. It was very cool looking. But it became equally as expensive 
us to build a set simply because of the logistics, because it was on the top of the the um, building, because of the lack of elevators, because we had to buy the entire floor of rooms underneath it, uh, because you couldn't put guests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Once you started tallying up all the fees, location fees, everybody came to me and said, "Do you think you can still build it?" And I'm like, "Now, I only have four and a half weeks." Whoa, you know, so. I mean, in, we were doing it in Montreal, the whole movie shot in Montreal, except for the small portion in, in Colombia. And um, anyway, so I was like, okay, I always wanted to build it, ready for the challenge. So um, I told, I just, the construction people were like, no, we cannot. I said, yes, you can. You're the best of the business, because they are. I said, you, you can. If anybody can do it, you can. We'll work this weekend. We'll get it done. So I designed it furiously. I took me a day to design it, to pitch it to the director, to agree on it, to the physical space. Then we sent it to the set designers. They elevated it very quickly. We started sending drawings. And um, I'm so happy you liked it. The translite gave us a hell of a time. Uh, that's that we had to order that from New York, and we got it. We got the wrong one, and anyway, there was drama with translites always. Story of production designers' lives. And but I'm so happy you liked it because part of what's so funny about that set is I kept saying, is it in a museum, or is it? A, a, a rich patron who's giving it, who was giving the party. Ah. No one could give me an answer. So I said, fine, it's in the museum. <laughs> Owned okay. by a rich patron. How's that? Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I was doing a museum kind of space, like, and to those, I have been to those. And part of it has to do with your original question how do you know fancy schmancy crowd? Well, I've been to openings because when I was a student, I was brazen enough to crash real <laughs> openings. I, I don't know how. I could never crash it now. But then I was able to do it. And I remember going um, a, totally a really funny story about Christo, who's an amazing artist, was an amazing artist. But very few people know that he's Bulgarian. I knew his brother. He was a friend of our family. So I wanted to meet Christo in 1981. I brought Christo to NYU to give a lecture. But what I did is I crashed the party, the very infamous now party of the opening of PS1, which is Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, everybody was there. The, literally the beginning of the big era of, of uh, street art and kind of new art and uh, the new markets and new artists. And I walked across the room to him and I spoke to him in Bulgarian and I said, I know you, brother, and I would like to invite you to NYU to give a lecture about your gates because he was in 1980. He was supposed to do the gates in Central Park, which happened 25 years later. And lo and behold, I got to know him and... I would crash any party from then on. I went to the um, Louise Bourgeois opening party at MoMA. And that's what I drew upon. That's the kind of the world I drew upon when I was doing uh, that set. Yeah. Crash. And that's great. I crashed the Louise Bourgeois party. She, I can't, she had an amazing sculptor, by the way. Amazing. One of my favorite sculptors. And she had her first solo exhibit. I think she was 80, pushing 80. Which is a shame, you know, because it's only because she was a woman. Uh, if right. she had been a male, uh, honestly, and this is not getting into anything political, uh -huh. it's the yeah. truth. Fire Female away. sculptors have a very hard time getting recognition. And she is absolutely 
brilliant sculptor and she's getting the recognition now and, and everything is, you know, she's in many museums and everything. But that was her first solo exhibit at MoMA, which was really, really beautiful and incredible. But yeah, you know, you draw on those experiences and this is why as a designer, you kind of have to be fearless and you have to crash a lot of things. So how, how are you going to do, if I was doing a street movie, you know, um, I don't know anything about that world. I'll be crashing it. I'll be going there and I'll be studying it. I mean, well, you know, that's what I, you do. <laughs> I, I love that you're saying that because there was like, you know, there's, there's in long shot, there's the newspaper office. There's, uh, right. I'm assuming yes. O'Shea Jackson the, the village is Wall voice Street. Kinda. Yes. Right. And yes. um, and also this movie, of course, you know, what you mentioned is such a great uh, feminist film. And yes. those newscasters like <laughs> badgering back and forth about, oh, she's good looking. And and I was just having a riot because my co-host is a big Charlize Theron fan. And in the last year or so, she like schools me on all this stuff. And I'll and she'll be like, you know, you love this movie, but just like. Here's five things, and just uh, watch it as a woman that thinks these five things. And then I'll be like, wait a minute, this movie was about this character since 1982, and now I realize that it's about the woman character. <laughs> like, but, but it had to be sold. It was, um, it was some kind of wonderful with Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson and Leah Thompson. Yeah. And she's like, the movie's not about Leah Thompson. It's about his tomboy friend. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's about the good-looking girl. And I wasn't saying that how it means, but I know that's how it was marketed. And sh and afterwards, I'm like, man, you are just attempting to spoil all kinds of movies. Like, <laughs> so that was our joke. She's like, no, I'm just trying to get you to see like how the 80s marketed to teenage boys. Like we we couldn't have our stories. So, yeah. So I, I yeah. loved that about Long Shot. And also the the two quick questions I had was. Uh, you did some work with the production designer of the West Wing pilot. And so I was wondering how that played into that you designed an Air Force One and the Oval Office. Do you just really just go off an overload of pictures or do you kind of also want to have some imagination to it? How, how does that work? Oh, so, so okay. Um, the Oval Office, I mean, honestly, all designers talk to each other about it because it's so many projects. We, because we were in Montreal, we actually made a deal with the X-Men uh, because they, they had an Oval Office and we, uh, they had a half a set. So we extended it. And then in terms of furnishings and stuff, you want to give the character of the president, right? So you go like, okay, well, this guy's in television, so he's going to have television sets and things like that. So you tweak the the set decor in a sense and, and what kind of drapes is he's going to have and what kind of carpet is is going to have. Uh, the Air Force One, we got plants and we really kind of recreated it as close as we can to the real one. Um, we had parts from some airplanes, but we had to build a skeleton. It was quite a bit of work went into it. Um, and uh, all designers really, oh, we always go like, why isn't there one to rent? Why do we always have to build this? Wait, 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 wait. So, you didn't, so you didn't just crash Air Force One? <laughs> right, exactly. That was a little harder to do? Okay, sorry, go ahead. 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, but the, the, that's not to me. That's not the most creative part of the of uh, long shot. The most creative part of long shot is that it had about a hundred sets that had to be all over the world because Charlize's character is the uh, Secretary of State and she travels, and I had to find the majority of them in Montreal, and so. Uh, what was really interesting is to, th- uh, and I'm glad I've done television, is because television has taught me to think very economically. So when I look at a location, I look at it not just, oh, this is great for France. I look at it, ooh, and that's what we did. Bottom floor, Buenos Aires. Top floor, France. The garden is I, Japan. I'm, I'm just, my, my brain is spinning off my head because <laughs> I, I, I assume that you guys didn't go to Hanoi and the Philippines and just because that would be outrageous cost-wise, but right. the fact that that's all Montreal, I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, like people right. love, right, Hawaii, where I'm from is, it's always Thailand, and it's Vietnam, and it's, um, I heard a cool thing about Forrest Gump the other day where the Vietnam scenes were just a field next to his home um, right. in Alabama, and I thought, okay, that's brilliant. They would just turn cameras around, and, um, but... Yeah, the amount of sets and places. I mean, so uh, you said it was filmed one other place because I don't recall there being a beach in Montreal, unless I'm sounding really moronic. <laughs> right, no, no, no. So for that part, well, so the, the hotel room that's supposed to be in the Philippines, that's a set. We built that on stage. So we, anytime you have um, uh, special effects, when you have shooting and destruction, all of that is uh, set. We're not going to go in a real hotel and start oh, right, break, right. breaking their oh, rooms down. Oh, that's right. They get right, right. Right. Yeah, they get shot and all of that. So that is a stage set. Uh, then you go when they go down in the hotel. That's in Montreal. When they go to the beach and all that, those parts that we did in Colombia. So we went to Cartagena uh, and we shot around there. And we also shot some of the Spanish when they go to Buenos Aires, you know, anything that had to do with Latin America or Spanish world, we shot there. So we shot for like three days there. uh, And that's it. But everything else was Montreal. And, And as I said, I literally, you know, that basement they run after they get shot at, that's uh, right above it is the Buenos Aires big red party. And okay, now, I was going to say that party in Buenos Aires was amazing. <laughs> but now I want to talk a little conceptual about production design okay, yeah. because, uh, because aside from the fact that I have 100 locations and I have to find them, I actually grounded the movie, and very few people will catch on that, but it's there as a concept. I wanted to do the American flag in it. So... Red white, uh, uh, red, white, and blue were the three parties, basically. They anchored um, the design. So that's why you end with a red party in Buenos Aires. You start with a white party, the one, the museum one. See, now, now that I tell you, you'll see that it's actually conceptually related. And then the one in the middle, the blue, is kind of more of a lavender blue, but that's the royal party in Sweden. When she gives a speech, yes, right? Crazy suit. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. That is amazing. When, wow. Yes. So, uh, some of it. So, so, I want to talk a little bit. I want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about production design and 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 particularly my approach to it, because from my theater training, I'm used to interpret the text and think of it conceptually first and come up with an idea and anchor the design into a concept. And when I go and interview with a director. It's kind of what I present, and I'm always flexible on it, 
you know, because they may not necessarily see it that way. But most directors would like you to have a point of view, would like you to come with something that they haven't thought about. Um, and so I always go with that. And that was the one that I came to, to Jonathan when I interviewed and I said, you know, I really think that we should do the American flag, but not in those bold, it will hide it in there, but we should anchor the theme of this through these three parties that it's first act, second act, and third act. It's so distinctly the three acts. Let's make it about the flag. And so, so that's kind of part of the work that I do. And, and it goes a lot, it, it goes in a lot of shows. And, and I mean, I don't, we only going to talk about film, but Lovecraft Country, my television show was so complex that if I didn't have that kind of conceptual thinking, I don't know how you could design that show, how you could anchor it, because it needed to be anchored. Um, otherwise, it would be just a hodgepodge of 10,000 things. Right. So the, the, the job of the production designer is so big and so influential, and we're the first artist to get on board. Very often, we're the first one. Not always, but very often, we're the first person to get hired. And we work with the director very early on, on um, developing the look of the film and the world, the 360-degree world, the environment. And you work with locations. And um, it's such a, it, we have such profound influence on the way the movie goes. And it's very rarely properly understood by even people in the industry, which I find fascinating. Um, yes, I, I agree. Anastasia and I have talked about that. And I, even in film school, our 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 class we had obviously classes of each department and it was called art direction class not production design well that's unfortunate because the, the unfortunate thing is because that's how the award is given it's an old term it's um right. it's it's a it, it's it's a technical thing um they're really the same thing. But production design came into the 70s. That term came in through big time into the 70s because of Dick Silbert and people like that who truly were doing, the reason it came in is they were designing the entire look of the film down to they had influence on the costumes and on the hair and the makeup, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you, you as a production designer, depending on what director you're working with, you truly can have influence over every single visual department. Not to mention that we oversee visual effects nowadays. So many people think visual effects do our job <laughs> instead of understanding oh, right, that right, right. we actually do their job. They just happen to execute our thinking and our conceptual thinking. And um, But I think that it, because I grew up in theater, theater designers are really the number one in a sense because they create the whole stage set. And then lighting falls in, follows that and costumes follows that. And so I just feel, feel film doesn't look at it this way. But the truth of it is production design and cinematography go hand in hand. You cannot have, one cannot exist without the other. We are absolutely dependent on each other because you cannot have good cinematography with a bad design and vice versa. You cannot have a good design with bad cinematography. So we're so married at the hip. And to me, that is one of the most important relationships and one of the most fun because you really are together creating this um, world. I start earlier. I mean, the production designer starts earlier. Right. But once the cinematography steps in, we're in this as, as a brother and sister or any permutation of siblings. <laughs> well, that's so... Uh, I met 
uh, Richard Silbert once at a party. A mentor introduced me to him, and I just didn't say anything. Yeah, amazing person. I was just like, and my mentor was looking at me like, uh, I brought you over here to talk. And I was just looking at him like, uh, you worked with Hal Ashby. So <laughs> what do I have to say that's going to make you go home? Because I was like 20. So I was just mm-hmm. thinking like, he's not going to go home and be all home. I just can't believe I met Paul at that party. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, your, I mean, your, your process with the cinematographer, like uh, how you come on before, what is kind of a general, given that there's not something crazy or time or a falling out, what is the general mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. ratio when the cinematographer comes in with you for your process? Well, I always want to meet them as early as possible. Um, if they're like, if they're hired, if they're already on board, if the director has a cinematographer they work with before, that's great because then I can have this dialogue very early on. So what I normally do is I try the minute the cinematographer is on board, I try to immediately share all the design books everything that I have and try to get them engaged in any of the construction of sets as early as possible because I know they're going to ask me for more windows that I didn't think about. I try to anticipate, but they might have other ideas. And I'm there to support and help. And I am never going to say no to a cinematographer. Um, And I just want to make sure that they have everything that they need to create the best picture, the best look, the best image. And so for me, that relationship is super important and very, very fun. Um, And I've had really wonderful working relationships with some great guys like uh, Jonathan Schwartzman uh, is amazing. Uh, Don Burgess on Wonder. Um, I can go on and on and on. I just, I don't, I can't remember having a bad relationship with a cinematographer uh, in a sense, unless they really don't respect design. I think most cinematographers really respect design and they know how much we can help them and how much we can um, coexist and work together as artists. And I think that, you know, there is no, for me in art, particularly film, there's no room for ego for those of us who are making the film you know, who are right. the soldiers of it. There's no reason for that. We're, it's a highly collective form. Um, so I look for collaboration and I share all the books with the costume designer. I try to send everything very early on so that people are not surprised or that they do know what my color palette is or what my thinking is and what my research is. And because lately, um, since 2018, I made a deal with my agent that I would only do period films. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been only on period films and period projects. Um, it's the research that you go into. You're the first person to do research. It's so interesting and so helpful to the other artists. Why not share it right up front? Why make them go through all of the same uh, links and everything? And so um, I just feel very collaborative i work very collaboratively that to me that's the fun part well you it. mentioned the windows um and when we were watching the conspirator the other night mm-hmm. uh i had told my mother i was going to be interviewing you and 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 she actually commented she goes wow that placement of the light in the courtroom that mm. is so amazing because we were kind of thinking there obviously mm. wasn't courtroom light and 
you're having to know exactly where he can do the, I mean, whether it was a set or day for night mm -hmm. or I, that's something I wish I never learned is how cinematographers make it look like day at night. Cause I, I could just point it out too easily now. And I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to know. I don't care that they were shooting at two in the morning, but it's supposed to be noon. Um, but with that, with that courtroom set, uh, was that, I mean, obviously you didn't find an 1800s courtroom or because <laughs> there's still historic stuff in the South where you take me to some of the conspirator because we, I've, yeah. I've been places to where it's like on the surface you would think, oh, those are gone. But then my friend was walking me around South Carolina and I happened to, she goes, oh, this is where they used to sell slaves on weekends. And it oh, was yeah. still looked like it, they had kept it up. No reason why to understand why. So what was that process like the conspirator? I mean, was that just you were researching 24 hours a day before you did it? I mean, that oh, was yeah, a monster. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also it's based on the transcripts of the, the of the court, um, you know, the court transcripts. So it's completely rooted in reality. We built a courtroom as a set. We built it in a defunct auto sales shop oh, wow. it was yes it was the most awkward space but savannah doesn't have um doesn't have stages however savannah had a lot of historical homes so it was a mixture of of real locations with uh sets uh, built sets and thomas newton siegel was the dp and he's brilliant and wonderful to work with and we very, very much collaborated on the windows precisely so he can light them in a very specific way. But it is based on the true drawings of the, of the courtroom and whatever other materials, descriptions I could get. What is fascinating about doing something where you don't prior photography, there's some photography, right, in 1865, but people are not going out and photographing their rooms yet. You know, it's portraits mostly. Um, however... There were there are a series of photographs of the hanging, and they uh. are heartbreaking because you can almost feel like the body swaying right. uh, because of the delay time. That's really really interesting. So there is some great photographic reference. I did, however, read a book about boarding houses in order to understand. I got such great details from it. Uh, why? Every boarding house had armoires. How did they become board houses, boarding houses? What made it different? The reason you had armoires and not closets is because you got taxed on doors. So closets had doors. So a closet technically was a room. So you got taxed on rooms. So that's why armoires. That's why you kept all your clothes in an armoire. Wow. That's no closets. Um, then I uh, learned how you can serve downstairs in the parlor. The front room will be the meeting room, but the back room would, would be the dining room. Normally, you'd put an armoire on the bed, and that's where you would, somebody will, after you serve dinner, you'll clean up the table, and somebody will have that bed and sleep in it. So that's very much in the movie, but that came out from this book. And it's so important to read and, and um, learn about those details because it makes the sets unique it makes them authentic and you feel it as an audience member because it's odd that there is a bed right behind the table but that's the reality of it it makes it more real it's just the hodgepodge of it and this woman's trying to survive and she's renting as many rooms as she can wow because that yeah, was a, uh, i was really and i loved it's not a spoiler because people can easily know how this uh what went Hence. on with this or should know how it ended but <laughs> yes. the um uh i mean we were again this is my opinion we were not laughing but we were just like 
oh, so trials became okay right after. And right. It, the, the, exactly. The parallels of that film, and again, we definitely won't get into it, but the just I'm saying the parallels of that film. I was just kind of like my mom always likes to tell me like don't be too upset about that because that's been going on since mm-hmm. the 16th century and will be going on long after you're not around. So I was watching yes. that film and I was like, hmm. I'm like they just want to control this agenda and yes. they don't care because mm-hmm. it's a woman. And then the gu- the son, <laughs> the son gets off. Is that because he's a man or is that because he's a son? And it was just my head was just spinning around those things. But one thing that I wanted to say about the, the building of the, of the, of the hanging area, um, Mm, I usually ask cinematographers this question, as much as you are a trained professional, we are professional and it's a gig, you're there because you love it. Where is the point that you really, uh, is there a time where you just cannot detach the emotion of what you're building? Like, the way like I couldn't imagine building that mm. like yeah. is, is there anything oh. thing you could say about that well I want to yes it's I want to talk about that set because obviously it's the last act it's the ending of the movie and very important and since there was a photographic evidence of it we actually knew what everything looked like and uh, Savannah has two forts two historical forts and one of them had exact same shape as the historical research but we couldn't make a deal with them. So we ended uh, um, at the other one, which was had round, round the walls. And so, and it was much bigger in size. And so the one thing I was thinking is, okay, I need to help this. So I built these buildings in the middle that are the stables and where the officers will eat. Uh, so I added structures to the, uh, to, the, to the fort in the middle of the field because it was the size of a football field, just too, way too big um, for camera. And you needed a more intimate, more enclosed, more claustrophobic feeling for the scene. And the scaffolding we did, we used period nails so that, you know, if you, can, if you see close-ups, you can really see the, the heads of the nails of the proper period. And when, you know, those are stunt people that go down when they take the hatches, right, and, and the bodies fall. It still makes a sound like it stops your heart when you watch it. It literally makes your heart stop because the sound of those hatches going down and the body swinging, the, the rope going down, it, you experiencing it. You really feel like you just watched the hanging. It's very powerful and very disturbing. It's hard not to get emotional. It really is. It's like I remember, there are a few times in my life where I was brought to tears on set from watching something. That's one of them. It was just really hard to watch. And and knowing that she was innocent too. Um, And then the other time was watching Emmett Till in in Lovecraft Country because it's just too horrible and it was real. The whole thing is real. Right. Um, the funeral was just heartbreaking, and there, there were there were moments in in Lovecraft Country that were so powerful because they were directly related to history and what human beings have done to another human being, and it's it's very hard. It's really hard. No, I mean I I heard a great commentary from Dave Chappelle where he said that that's such a horrible thing, but he always uh, appreciates that his mom had an open casket so that the world yes. could understand and that it could trigger 
them yes. to really see what was going on. So it, it is like a big yin-yang catch-22. Um, with Lovecraft Country, I'm I'm always intrigued when there's a cinematographer, anyone who is on a revolving thing, but I noticed you did nine out of ten episodes. Yes. Kind of what is the plan of attack when there's, if there's going to be multiple directors, multiple DPs, but you're going to be there for it? Is there something <laughs> that that really, a challenge that presents to you that you love, or is there a challenge that's maybe a headache? How does that work? No, I mean, I think, uh, well, it could become a headache if if the relationship goes south. But right. <laughs> it, it, hopefully you don't you don't go there. Uh, I, as I said, I mean, on that one, I started in December 2018. And Rob McLachlan was our DP. I had worked with him before. So that was very helpful because we had really liked each other. We had shorthand. Uh, we had a very collaborative relationship. And so that was never going to be a headache, just simply because we knew each other. And then the other cinematographer was Michael. He was just wonderful. Um, it was a really great vibe, great crew. And I started very early on. I developed the whole look. I mean, I just have to. They didn't hire Rob, I think, sometime in May. And we were starting to shoot in June. You know, the television world is different because people come in so late. Uh, film is a bit more forgiving. People can come earlier and can prep earlier. Uh, but a lot of DPs are very busy also. They're, you know, they're very booked up. So the reason you get them so late is not, is because they're doing another project. And so um, that's why I think email and, and is our friend. And now Zoom has become a friend. But, you know, as much as you can send them information early on in the process, uh, the better it is uh, once you have the DP on board. So Lovecraft Country was a, very easy for me because we we just really, really, the whole team worked together so well, from VFX to special effects. I mean, I have to interact with all these departments, and they were all terrific. And it was just such a great camaraderie and such a great sense of purpose. And uh, what happened with the pilot is that uh, I think only the costume designer came from the pilot. Literally, it was a whole new crew once we started the series. Um, um, yeah, and so that was, in a way, that was probably good for us because everybody was building a new language together. Oh, so yeah, I guess yeah, I guess that is a good thing. I, I've, I've, of course, have never done television or um, except for being a PA, so I've never had to experience... Or actually, I did produce a cheesy... Uh, Time Warner Cable put it on. It was like an action miniseries, and but mm. we just kept the same crew, so I never had to experience um, someone coming in or out past the talent. Um, do you have a a best lesson from Love Country or Lovecraft Country okay. that like there's no way you would have got it if you if you didn't do that show? Ooh, I feel like. Uh, I feel, first of all, as a, as a foreigner who's not familiar with all of American history, but I feel learning the details of the way Emmett Till was killed, Emmett Till was killed, and learning about oof, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, um, learning about this black history that, in, in, in researching it in depth, uh, had profound, profound effect on me. And I know about Jim Crow, right. but I didn't know about the sundown towns in the North. 
There are things I did. I don't think I understood the scale of racism. How this wasn't just a sudden thing, and I feel that was really, really important for me to learn as a person and as an American. And um, all I can say is I don't feel guilty that I didn't know about it because I'm a foreigner. Yeah, no, in no. a foreign <laughs> culture. But shame on textbooks in school for not teaching that. Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, so I feel there's a lot to be learned for everyone but he had a profound interest a profound effect on me profound because um it's important for all of us to look at the world from another point of view and uh you could never become uh, you can never experience it as a black person but you can at least develop an empathy and an understanding of it you know the same way i don't ask people to understand in a what it was to grow up in a communist country with your grandfathers being arrested on the same night before your parents met and thrown in a labor camp. I don't expect every American to understand that and the trauma that that has in your history. Um, I appreciate what you're saying about American history and the stuff that is left out of books. Um, I, I, I'm really enjoying this conversations because it, it seems like there's been like seven different things that have come up that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, and it's great that you get to be a part of bringing these things to, uh, to light. Um, and it, it really does amaze me. I was just fortunate to have great history teachers and my father's super into history to where he would just be like, pay attention to this. And then just what you were saying about Jim Crow, uh, my dad was born in the Midwest in Missouri. And all I can say is, is he just had the full uncles that you know, were part of the problem. And so I was just always very aware and very conscious to, um, how do you say, uh, you respect your blood and where you're from, but you kind of don't want to be a part of it. So that's kind of why these, what you were saying was important to me about that historical stuff that we need to talk about. And, and my mother is Mexican, so yeah. I, I in Tulsa I actually got chased by some skinheads once, so um, <laughs> I yeah. can relate to that part in a weird way. So anyways, well, good. And right. I, I do find it fascinating that the reason Americans are learning about Tulsa now is from The Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. Two oh. HBO shows. Right, right. No, it's it's I don't know. I, I've, 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 for the first time, have hit that age where I have to notice and be like, "Why would somebody not know this?" Oh yeah, I did graduate high school twenty-five years ago. Like, <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't know that when I was eighteen. So why would I think that a Gen Xer would, you know, or a Gen Z? Um, so that's a good point. And HBO, wow, there. That's cool that you got to work for them because I, I just have always loved how they just have the full tilt guts with the. Um, with the programming. <laughs> well, I did also great gardens for them. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I saw that. You know, you had yeah. the, your, your filmography. Uh, I love when I, I look at a filmography and I just go, I would have to pick a third of this, you know, like, cause we're, we're going to be uh, wrapping up soon, but it's like little miss sunshine and, uh, <laughs> wonder, um, I was always a fan of Swim Fan. I call it a, a fatal attraction for teenagers. No, I just want to share that I am gobsmacked that that's the movie that 
is really, really um, made an impression on this uh, new generation. People ask me about it all the time. And I'm just tickled pink because I had no idea that movie had legs. And when we were making it, I approached it as Hitchcock in high school. Okay. And it's how I saw the director the premise of this pool that was so old from the turn of the century with a tiny little tile because they had, had been looking until that moment to contemporary pools, real high school pools. And I just kept going, that's so bland and boring. Can we not make a Hitchcock movie? <laughs> that's how I pushed the look of the whole school and of the whole experience towards a more interesting visual world. You know, I, I love that you said Hitchcock because I for, it was when she was... I was thinking it along the way with some of the shots of her in the window, but then I really was like, okay... She loves Hitchcock when uh, she's coming in as the nurse. And just the way it was designed and the way that hallway felt and just the kind of... I just was like, oh, I, I just know she's going to have something to say about Hitchcock. And I loved <laughs> that. I lo What I love most about movies like Swim Fan is that people my age and younger, oh, I don't want to see strangers on a train. I don't want to see this or that. But then they'll love Swim Fan. Right? Right. And it's just like you're watching a Hitchcock movie. You're just seeing Erica Christensen or... And that pool, I love that you're saying it was an old pool because something that I wrote down here was, how did you find a creepy pool? There's nothing <laughs> creepy about pools other than if we're afraid of drowning or we don't like the deep end or we had a bad experience. So it's not the actual pool. So was there a number of pools, like you were saying, there was a, it was kind of an old pool, or was, did you just kind of find that quickly? Because that was so specific. Well, the story of that film is that some other designer had started it, and they just had a creative differences. So I had very little prep. I was just thrown in into it, and I first thing I asked the director, I said, like, what is your biggest concern, and what was the biggest creative difference over? And he said, the pool. And I said, well, why? He said, well, they're all very plain looking. And I said, that's what high school is like in America is like. So I have an idea. I know about this pool in Harlem. Let's go take a look at it. And literally that night we went to look at it. Uh, and it's, um, it's a public pool uh, in Harlem and it's beautiful, but decrepit. And he loved it. And I just said, okay, now I can design your movie because now we're talking Hitchcock. Now we're talking a period high school. Now we're bringing a kind of vibe, a different vibe to this movie. And that's what we did. And then I forgot about the movie, did a lot of other movies, and I'm working on Lovecraft. And my PA, who's like 26 or 27, goes like, I love your work. And I said, oh, really? Which part? And he goes, swim fan. I said, swim fan from all the movies it just knocked me with a feather I, w I was so amused by it and I discovered there was a whole sort of um, underbelly of people who are in the world that they love this movie <laughs> you know it's a cult classic I guess <laughs> oh it, it, it's, it's definitely a, um, a cult classic and it's I found it you know late at night <laughs> and was I'm we're the same age so I'm not saying anything crazy but just I was like Erica Christensen has crazy and uh 
cool. And then I was just like, wow, this is really psycho. And, <laughs> yes. you know, I just was, um, yeah, so I, I don't know what it is. it is. I guess it is a cult film. And when I went back to it, I was just like, wow, this is, I don't think I've watched it in 10 years or more. But uh, I was really excited, so I guess it is just, um, and it's, how funny is it that uh, that came up before just the gem of Little Miss Sunshine, which I know we just don't have time for, but um, kudos on that. I um, <laughs> Such a fun film, such a great film. That That is on that list. I, I don't think I've ever found anyone that didn't like it. Um, I mean, I think everyone has a dysfunctional family. Do you have a, do you, before you retire or stop working, do you have a dream genre you would love to design? Oh, easy answer. Musical. What kind of musical? A big, boisterous musical or just like a kind of an In the Heights soft story musical? No, I think that I'm more on the avant-garde side. I would love to see Annette. I would love to do something really crazy. I'd love to see, some, I'd love to see Charlie Kaufman do a musical and I'd love to design that. <laughs> a Charlie Kaufman musical. Yes. Wow. That's a, okay, that's <laughs> an adaptation has a musical. Being John Malkovich has a musical. I think there you're really, you I think you're really onto something. There you go. You should, you should pitch him if you know him. Um, <laughs> do, do, do you have a, not necessarily story because uh, sometimes guests have just said, uh, I mean, it's, it's an, I mean, I don't try to control the answer on this, but. I wonder if there's a, so the question is just the opposite, a genre that you just would not design. Let's just say for whatever the reason, you missed a mortgage payment, there's not much food, you're back to being a student filmmaker, but there's no way you're going to design this genre. Definitely. I've, uh, well, let me just give you a long answer. Throughout my career, I've tried to do every genre. I don't want to be stuck in one particular um, end of genres. I don't want to just do comedies. I don't want to just do movies with kids or this or that. One genre I absolutely avoided was what I call torture porn, like movies like Saw. I, I cannot do that. I cannot design anything that tortures people for pleasure. <laughs> I just, that's very difficult for me. Okay. That you know, that's actually come up a few times. Uh, people have said saw. Yeah, it's not for me. Or the torture. Uh, our guest last week, a production supervisor uh, from a number of films that are out there. Actually, she just did the White Lotus on HBO. Um, oh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 down to the finale. Um, she said she would never do a, be a production supervisor on a horror film because she believes that certain spirits you mess with follow you and she's heard about people that have done a horror film and then something crazy happens afterwards or what the film was about shows up in their life or mm, so it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of interesting um yeah definitely the torture stuff i mean i had to cut I my teeth as a producer on cheesy horror films so i just <sighs> can't even watch them anymore for, for me, horror genre is, is, is interesting because it can be, like, technically Lovecraft Country's horror, but not really. Uh, it just uses some of the devices, but it's really about racism and much deeper human condition themes. So for me, that was not a problem at all. Uh, but I, am, I have not watched a lot of horror films. It's just not something that gives me pleasure. Um, 
again, if you grow up on 70s movies, you're kind of looking for a little bit of intellectual stimulation. Plus, we haven't even talked about the European movies I grew up on. So uh, my natural inclination is to go for films that have more of a comment on the human condition uh, than just a an effect for oh, to like scare something to just scare you and be crazy yes exactly it's a campfire yeah. story I, I appreciate that you're mentioning european films because i still i say it with no arrogance or presumption but i my mind still just flies off my head when people say like who's laszlo kovacs and who's vilmos zygman and who's milos forman and uh won't dare get into the plansky <laughs> wave of films in Europe, but um, uh, Truffaut and you know the standards. Four hundred blows, like, was another film that I don't really remember life before I saw it. Mm. So I constantly tell people, and those Antoine Dunel, those five films that got made together. I it I waited like twelve mm. years before I found Stolen Kisses and um the other ones. But I remember I was watching TCM with my mom, and they said. Uh, in the next two nights, we're presenting the Antoine Donnell series, and I just told my mom, I looked at it, I said, do you realize that you're going to get to see these five films for the first time in order in the same 48 hours, that there's film buffs that still haven't, like, you have mm -hmm. to buy the big Criterion box, right? Yeah. So that's how they, they that's why I'd never seen Stolen Kisses and all these, so, um, yeah, Truffaut, uh, I don't know. We both know that it's another thing that we could talk about yeah. so long. Well, and as a and as a designer, Fellini and his films oh, yes, yeah. had such a tremendous um, impact on my on my sensibilities. And compile that with Antonioni, Michelangelo Antonioni, yeah. who who has such an interesting um, point of view about camera. And and I mean, there's so much to learn from those two. They have had tremendous influence on me as a well, like, as an artist. I pronounce it wrong. Um, Armacord, Armacord, uh, Armacord. Yes. Yeah. I saw that once, and I was just like, "This is every music video I've ever seen." Yes. Like, <laughs> he invented that genre. Yes. Yeah. I just was like, and <laughs> and it was within thirty seconds. It's the most presumptuous I'll sound. Where I was just like, they were having a TCM was running a, every weekend. They would have a director film festival, and it was just this brilliant thing. And I remember I was so angry with my girlfriend because she wanted me to travel with her on Sydney Lumet weekend. <laughs> and she was just like, you can rent. I'm like, no, but, you know, whoever rents all Sydney Lumet's films and what and sits down. I'm like, this is just going to be on the T. And anyways, it sounds so immature. Um, <laughs> but Fellini, I mean, La Strada and obviously Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita. Um, I, I hope that the Gen X and Z are checking these out. And um I highly recommend the new beautiful set of Fellini movies in the packaging, the DVDs. Oh my God, it's it's a piece of art. Oh, is Criterion and Janice putting those out? New new version? It's a Criterion collection. Uh, so, uh, Kalina, we really appreciate that you uh, came on the air today. Um, this has been a great uh, time talking film and life and things that came up. And I absolutely just love how you interacted with Jonathan Demi and Redford to start. I just truly, truly admire those stories. So thank you for sharing them. <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs>
know, that's, no, I, I, I just love it. I just, I have so many mentors that are just like, you always have to just go for it and the chips are going to fall, but I'm just going to, yeah, I, I want to tell you one more thing, even if you don't publish it, but with Jonathan Tammy, how we finished a circle was in 2017, I was designing a Netflix show called Seven Seconds. And Jonathan came in to direct the second episode in it. And that was something very special for me, for both of us, that I got to finally design something for him. And he died shortly after, like literally during the show he died. He, I think he died a month and a half later. So I I, I mean, I, I don't want to say that's a, I mean, that is a great thing that you got to do. That's really fantastic. Yeah. And this, and this is called seven seconds. Yeah. It's, it's with Regina King. Oh, Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. It's, it's a really good show uh, about corrupt police. Very good. But it was such a wonderful way to close our friendship in a way. And who knew that that was going to be the last time I was going to see him. I, 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 the one thing I could say with Demi is that I love how Paul Thomas Anderson uh, is the one I hear that pushes him still the most, other than the the mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs and the when mm-hmm. people who are, you know, Something when we're wild. so into film that we have to know who Roger Corman is. Um, yeah. That I love that he'll always say it's one of his favorites and uh, keep that going in documentaries and not just fall back on the, you know, I don't mean this how it sounds, but I, at a certain point I get... It's like we already know people like George Lucas. We already know everybody loves. Like I'm not saying this the way it sounds, but we already everybody loves a Spielberg movie. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I really want to know what's past that that you love, or what's you know that that real that real gem at the bottom. You know. Yeah. Thank you again for these these this great time. It was a real pleasure meeting you, and you know uh, all the all my best to you and uh, best you. wishes during all this uh, stuff that's going on in the world. Thank you. Same to you. Well, we want to thank Kalina Ivanov for coming on, sharing all those gems. And you can check out her work. Some stuff is uh, for rent on Amazon Prime, like Silence of the Lambs, Little Miss Sunshine, Wonder, uh, Chapter 27, Lovecraft Country is on HBO Max, and so is uh, Swim Fan. Well, that's going to do it for us here at Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. You know my motto, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, Make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration.